Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. I'm John Bob Hortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. One hates to begin any discussion with a discussion of a massacre of children, and yet we must do so. Um, uh, 18-year-old gunman uh, in a town in southern Texas um, uh, with uh, having uh, shot and maybe killed his grandmother moments before, crashes his car, puts on body armor, uh, somehow evades uh, efforts to uh, in, to intercept him before he goes uh, into the school building, probably because of the body armor from armed uh, officers, <sighs> gets in, and I guess the death toll is now up to 21. Um, and we are about to start, we have already started a cycle of uh, recrimination and efforts to make political hay out of uh, this uniquely horrible American fetish uh, toward <clears throat> mass killing, particularly uh, in and around schools. Um, I think the striking thing is to hear and watch people, uh, notably Barack Obama, say things like, and this is a quote from Obama, it's long past time for action, any kind of action. What does that mean? Because it was echoed. I mean, people, a bunch of people said, we have to do something. I don't care what it is. We have to do something. Um, Houston Chronicle editorial board. We call on Governor Abbott whose campaign war chest is comfortably overflowing in his re-election bid against Democrat Beto O'Rourke to replenish his bankrupt conscience and do something, anything, to stop the blood of children and the tears of parents. Do something. Note how the something goes undefined or undefinable because in a country where there are 400 million guns, uh, by, by some estimates, 270 million by other estimates, the idea of banning guns or getting rid of guns is, of course, a fantasy. So here's where we are. Uh, the very, the are, routinization of the response. This is kind of a good point. The, the routinization or ritualization of the response when these events happen is evidence in the minds of people who, who want to see something, anything done, is evidence of how lamentable the condition that we're in is that it's just become this ritual that they engage in even up to and including attacking the national rifle association which would have made sense a decade and a half ago but it's such an attenuated organization now that it is just purely a mantra um one thing that you know one thing that probably makes this difficult on especially on lawmakers with a federal profile is that everything probably needs to happen at the state level uh, particularly when it comes to like red flag laws. Texas doesn't have a red flag law. And this kid was a screaming red warning sign. Yeah, but guess what? Guess what state has a red flag law? New York State. New York. 
only guess what happened work 10 it. days ago in Buffalo? Guess yeah. who should have been red flagged? The shooter in Buffalo who came into uh, under, you know, in into the attention of law enforcement because of threats to shoot up a school. And for some reason, the red flag wasn't triggered in his case. So red flag laws, which basically say no one is being enjoined to do anything, just there is reason to worry about this kid, for example. Like the red flag would appear when somebody did a background check on the kid at the gun store in in New York State. And then the gun owner might say, you know what, I, you need to come back in 72 hours or I'm, I don't think I'm going to sell to you today or something like that. So we actually, it's interesting because the red flag solution um, makes a lot of sense. Right, a red flag like, order would involve a court and a judge who removes a firearm from your possession upon the recommendation of a law enforcement officer or somebody well, that's in the one, health profession. That's one example of a red flag law. The red flag law in New York simply would make a person who had come into law enforcement could come into the scrutiny of law enforcement that that fact would be noted when somebody did a background check. So there are the, different forms of red flag laws. This, this though gets to the first point you made, which is the weird hollow rhetoric of oh, do something, do anything. This country has a lot of each state by state, as Noah says, is an also an important point that it has to be done state by state. We have a lot of gun laws in the on the books. What we're very bad at doing is enforcing them, enforcing them consistently and to the absolute limit of, of everything that's possible to be done for them. That's true. of That's why we have a ton of handgun related gun violence in cities, because those laws aren't enforced. I know in my own city, people who put a gun to your face walk free the next day, even though they are armed with an illegal firearm that gets papered over and they walk free. That's causing linked to a huge amount of death and destructiveness in communities. School shooters, same thing. They should be enforcing these laws. Yes, Texas could go. The legislature could now convene and pass a much tougher real red flag law that is then enforced. But this stuff has to be enforced. And this is why I get very annoyed Um to, for two reasons. One, the media needs to understand, and my friend Ari Shulman at the New Atlantis has written several pieces about this over the years. There is a way to talk about these school shootings in particular to discourage copycats, to discourage the kind of infamy that, that very uh, disturbed individuals seek when they go about slaughtering innocent children. So that's one lesson that needs to be learned by the media. But for these lawmakers, particularly the ones on the Democratic side of the aisle who say, well, it's just the gun lobby. The president said this. Oh, it's just the gun lobby. Noah's absolutely right. The gun lobby is quite a lot weaker than it used to be several decades ago. The problem isn't the gun lobby. The problem is an idea that you should only selectively enforce the laws you do have on the books, because maybe there's some social justice reason why you don't want to incarcerate people who have clearly used guns for violence. Maybe there is we, we're worried about talking about mental health. The mental health issues in all of these cases, the Buffalo case and this one, too, these are serious problems. And even countries like Switzerland that have a lot of ownership, private ownership of guns, have a much better mental health system. That's something we need to talk about in this country. There's also, there's a, I think, another, at least another aspect of all this. Um, when you talk about red flags, I don't mean the red flag laws necessarily. Um, every one of these cases, these people nurture and advertise their illness and their crime online. Uh, people see it. Multiple people see it. They have pictures. They have declarations. This guy 
sent his picture of uh, pictures of his guns to to a strange woman online uh saying things like i'm about to do it look i know you know with all this talk of the social media platforms um going after uh disinformation um with all their their extraordinary algorithms that can feed you tell tell who you are and to send you any sort of product or 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 article that that they might think you're interested in <clears throat> maybe they should start actually trying to pick up on the patterns the digital patterns here among these people because it's in every single case we have blunt advance warning Kid, there's the case of the subway the recent subway shooter too yeah, that's basically what red flag laws are designed to do, because in a free society, we can't algorithmically algorithmically monitor your online conversations to determine whether you're mentally imbalanced. I mean, first of all, that doesn't exist. Second of all, it would be a violation of your rights and liberties. And I don't think most states would would do that. And that's not what the people who are saying do something want. What they say, what they mean when they say do something is ban assault rifles. And the problem is that we've had that conversation for a decade and a half, and it is definitively settled in favor of lawful firearm ownership among people who want to own long guns. It's over. The debate Wait. is done. And they don't well, want the debate to be done. Well, I'm sorry. So to go back to this point, <clears throat> what's illegal about uh, a social media platform saying, saying, going to law enforcement saying, just so you know, We've got some weird stuff going on with this with this guy here. Well, technically, I don't know how you would do that. How do, how would you monitor conversations for that sort of those kind of? And uh, well, they I could do it. Language. I don't know technically they, how they do any of it, but they well, look, do. Look, they there are there. If you opt in for, to your, if you work for a big corporation that has a health program within which incentivizes healthy living, you can opt into monitoring via your smartphone and even in some cases sensors that will monitor things like spike in blood pressure and send you a text. Like the, we well, have that's what the I mean. Technology. It has to be much smaller than that. It has There's to no also be opt in right. right now. There's no national well, regime or even a right. state level regime that can do that at scale. Okay, so the central issue here is that Obama says, do something, do anything. People say, do something, do anything. And you're right that basically the, the default policy really for three decades now has been to deal with, you know, quote, assault weapons, unquote, ban them. They were banned for 10 years. The uh, Congress uh, did not renew the ban. Um, but do something. So you sort of fetishize the idea that if you could just get these guns away from these people, then these things wouldn't happen. You know, the AR-15, you know, get, get, get rid of it. And while it is true, I suppose, that the AR-15, you know, is implicated in this case and in the Buffalo case and in various other cases, ban the AR-15. So somebody uses something else or gets an illegal version of it or something like that. The issue here isn't the equipment. It is, this is a, this is a bizarre delusion on the part of people who think that there are public policy solutions to moral spiritual crises or the expressions of evil. The question we have to ask ourselves is what, larger societal dramas are leading 
not only to these horrible acts, but the increase in the number of suicides uh, and various other things, the country seems to be locked in. And this, by the way, enrages liberals when we talk about this country seems to be in a deep spiritual crisis or a lot of the country or a lot of people in the country or the people in the country who are least able to shoulder the burden when there is a gigantic spiritual crisis. Um, and, and they are uniquely susceptible to its effects. Um, that's what we see. And the question is, well, how do we get here? And what, if anything, is to be done? And the problem is that what is to be done is not political. I mean, it's not political in the sense that you can't legislate nihilism away. You can't legislate the hunger to harm other people to satisfy some evil inclination inside your own soul. Legislation isn't going to cure that. Maybe, again, if you somehow could wave a, wave a wand and remove these guns from circulation, then people might have the motive, but they wouldn't have the same opportunity. And so I, I understand the temptation to believe that this is a solution, but it's not a solution in the sense that Christine said, we have a broken mental health system and boy, do we have a broken mental health system. Fascinatingly, one of the great libertarian achievements of the 60s left, I would say, or sort of liberalism in the 60s was to destroy effectively a, a long war that ended up breaking up what, what was a form of a mental health system in the United States in which there could be, you know, um, commitments, uh, families could indefin indefinitely involuntary commit family members who showed violent tendencies. We ended a lot of mental institutions closed in the early 70s um, in favor of halfway houses, single room occupancy hotels. There was this there was this dream that psychopharmacology would solve problems that warehousing could not. And it's now we have 50 years of psychopharmacology. Is it working? Well, I mean, you would say if you were doing a longitudinal study that psychopharmacology hasn't worked. That is to say, the number of people who are who are like seriously mentally ill in the United States has not declined precipitously. Maybe psychopharmacology helps for the mildly depressed or the somewhat incapacitated. Um, has it been, and maybe for peaceful or you know nonviolent schizophrenics and things like things like Thorazine and Abilify and others have had a salutary effect. But you can't look at this experiment, again, half century long experiment in privatizing mental health or privatizing or making these individual responsibilities in a certain way and say that it's been a, a wild success. The problem is that to do something where we reverse this and change the way we approach this, say that person, that homeless person walking around on the streets is a, is, is a danger to himself and possibly a danger to others. And for his sake, as well as for society's sake, he needs to be put somewhere, maybe where he can get treated, where he can at least not be a danger to himself and others, where he can be kept safe from his own inclinations and others can be kept safe. But 
amount of money that is going to cost to re to recreate the network of hospitals and its public institutions and things like that. Well, and there's no stomach to spend it. There's also, it it would also just be a massive legal battle against, I mean, I actually at the neighborhood level have dealt with this over the past few years. We had a guy who would go off his meds and he'd wander around and he was sucker punching grandmothers and curb stomping people and just totally random acts of violence outside our nearby grocery store. The cops would arrest him. He'd get immediately released. They'd arrest him again to get released. Finally, enough people filed charges. They were able to get him in front of a judge who said, okay, you've got to be held and you've got to take your meds. And he did for a couple months. Then he was released. He went off his meds. The whole cycle starts again. This is what happens. So you can't, and he had on his side, all these advocates. Oh, if he wants to live on the street, he's just unhoused. He can, he can live in a tent or, you know, he doesn't have to take his drugs. You can't make him take his drugs. There's a whole kind of weird do-gooder-ish impulse to allow people to destroy themselves in front of our eyes, whether it be through living on the streets where they're shooting up and dying and shooting each other and having drug deals and all kinds of other kind of horrible things happening to them. We can't, we don't have the language anymore to even intervene because it's considered some sort of, you know, authoritarian violation to get these people off the streets and get them help. And as you say, John, getting them help costs a lot of money. And that's where I think on the right side of the aisle, you see a lot of people going, oh, it's not, we're not going to spend money on that. We need to, we need to nobody invest wants, resources. Nobody wants to spend money. The left doesn't want to spend money on yeah. this. The left, the left's passion, the decarceration passion extends to this as well. Right. In other words, when they say, oh, we need to spend money on the mentally ill, they don't mean what we need to do is build institutions where we can- the violently mentally ill, yes. Yeah, where we can place them. They mean give social workers money to go to their houses or do whatever. It's It's not the creation of institutional settings that is the way to make people- safer so there's no stomach for it on anybody's part you still and need then, somebody in your life who's willing to trigger all these mechanisms if and when they ever exist that's such uh, a good no point. you don't right well, now you do but now yeah. but you you don't you didn't used to right that was part of the liberalization of all this was that it was possible judges could involuntarily commit people brought to them by the police now you can say that that system was horribly misused there was a lot of investigative journalism in the 40s 50s and 60s about the the horrors of the of, of mental institutions and things like that again compared and to they were used they were misused they were designed to get people who were in uh, inconvenient out of the way well they could be right i mean i'm saying that that's why they fell out of favor that's why they became a sort of subject of uh you know humanitarian horror um and yet the world without them uh, is pretty Hobbesian for the, you know, um, we're talking about helping to manage lives that are more often than not going to be tragic. I mean, I mean, which is something we can't bear to say or think or do, but there are people whose lives are going to be tragic. So the question is, will the tragedy, can the tragedy be contained to them? Can they be, can they be treated in a way that will lessen their pain? And can the burden that they place on their family members be lessened? And can the threat that they pose to society be lessened? And it's very, very, very pricklishly difficult. And it's, that's why it's so easy for Biden to give this preposterous speech last night in which he says, why can't we stand up to the gun lobby? There's no gun. First of all, what is a lobby? 
left it, liberals love to use the word lobby as a pejorative. What is a lobby? A lobby is millions of people gathering together to support an organization to push a legislative or policy agenda. It's not that the lobby itself exists independently of American citizens who are protecting rights they believe they have or protecting ideas and ideals that they want. What the pro-abortion lobby, you know, what about them? I mean, you know, the gun lobby, which, as you say, the actual NRA is now vastly weaker institutionally than it was several, in part due to a lot of its scandals. But the power of the gun owner remains unchallenged. Why? Because 36% of the households in the United States have a gun in them. It's not that. of people in the United States have guns and they're all rich and they're paying to make sure that everybody, you know, lets them have the guns that they want. We're talking about 150, 160 million people. For 10 years, we've been having this argument with frustrating regularity, in part because of all the bloodshed. But it has been definitively settled. Democrats want to punish lawful gun owners when these things happen. And lawful gun owners have rejected and fought back every effort to the point now where they are unassailable and yet we continue to assail them uh, expecting different results well we don't assail them i mean this is a cult this is part of this idea that only the right wages a culture war i mean this is a part of a culture war the gun owner in the united states or sort of the average gun owner in the united states is somebody who has a gun in their home in part because of a set of ideas about how the world is constituted. Either they believe they need to protect themselves if the worst happens and that they're not going to deputize that or outsource it to, you know, some professional who lives 22 miles away who might take an hour to get to their house, or they believe in a older cultural set of um, traditions about hunting and hunting for sport and what that what that's for or they believe that people should be armed because it is constitutionally correct or they're members of the military and they have constitutionally correct by which you mean there is a right that they're allowed to exercise and they are exercising yeah but i'm just saying that that then there are people who are like you have no reason to have that gun it's like well you know you have no reason to have that copy of 50 shades of gray either in your house, but you do, you know, uh, and then someone says, well, 50 shades of gray won't kill anybody, even if it's a, you know, bad piece of, you know, bad piece of BDSM porn. And this is where it gets a little interesting because maybe it does. Maybe it's not that simple. Maybe we've spent, you know, 70 years degrading our common culture to the extent that whatever guard, whatever invisible guardrails existed that could have prevented this guy in Texas from doing what he did, this kid in Texas, have been so long gone that we can't even imagine a world in which it would never have occurred to him to do this. Well, that's why you know? the Biden, the, 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 what was so awful about Biden's weird pat phrase he likes to trot out about deer and Kevlar vests, he uses it for the State of the Union, he uses this phrase all the time. It, it was sort of, awful for him to repeat it in this particular case rather than just giving you know sort of 
being the uniter in chief that he claimed he was he's going to be when he was running for office, because the idea is that the, the message behind that, which actually fuels polarization on this issue, rather than kind of getting people to talk about on either side what what compromises might be made and who could be persuaded to do what, is that what he's saying is the government, the federal government with its massive power should be able to tell you what you should and should, what you need. It's not just about what you can and can't do, because he says no one needs, you know, a, a rifle, a, an AR-15 to, to hit, to kill a deer. Well, that's true. You can shoot a deer with a hunting rifle, but it's the language, it's the tone, it's the kind of, we will use, you know, you, we will tell you what you need. And that's, I think, speaks to your point, John. Like if, the, if you have a fraying social fabric where institutions are mistrusted and families are broken and we've just come out of two years of isolation, a lot of these guys, these young men, the shooting- Top-down isolation. Yeah. Top-down order- Top-down isolation. isolation. From the top. Yes. And, and you have all of the, there are so many causes to it. That's why I, when he said that deer and Kevlar vest thing, I actually had such a flash of anger. Like this is, that's not the job. That's not the job we need right now from our president. Um, and, and I would have been just as mad if a Republican had had those words come out of his mouth. It wasn't a partisan thing. It was just, no, this is not the moment for your trite little phrase. You know, sometimes there are problems for which there is no, policy or legislative solution. This is very clearly, we're talking decades of this. Uh, sometimes it accelerates, sometimes it slows down. There are 330 million people in the United States. In the last two weeks, we've had two of the 330 million people in the United States commit these horrendous, horrific, nightmarish crimes. Um, we are always in danger of overestimating the meaning of these crimes or, or, you know, that's why I said, are we a sick society? We don't really know, you know, because I don't know what connection I have my life, my family, my existence, whatever has to this kid in Uvalde, Texas. What, how am I implicated in his, in his crime? I have nothing to do with him. He lives 2,700 miles away from me. He's from a different cultural background he's you know got the problems that he has you know is that all of america is all of america to be blamed when this kid or the kid in upstate new york when they do what they do the question is is there a way and we're back to our old neo-conditorate is there a way is there there was some kind of form of deterrence of these kind of acts that we have lost and that deterrence isn't banning assault rifles. The deterrence is spiritual or, I mean, I don't, spiritual is just too vapid a word for it. It is that there is a culture of death and nihilism and there's a world on the internet and elsewhere that celebrates evil that is now more accessible to people than it was before. And all of those things that people said that people, everybody made fun of, and I made fun of, and we all make fun of when it really annoys us because it, it, it involves things that we love. You know, violent comic books are bad. A lot of people made fun of that in the 50s, right? Uh, Frederick Wortham's Seduction of the Innocent. Oh, this is really having a moral stain on the youth. And that's become a, an incredible parodic, you know, embarrassing Mrs. Grundy-ish thing to talk about. Or violence here or this or you know but there there is certainly a sense in which a lot of our culture 
preaches or plays around with or fools around with dehumanized uh, stereotypes or dehumanized circumstances that can lead very sick people into very, very dark places. Well, I'll go back to my technology rant. It makes me sound like a Luddite. So be it. I, I, I am to some Christine, extent. Christine, there's another Luddite. On the oh, I yeah. approve. I yes, approve. Yeah, yeah. Rant away. <laughs> um, but part of the dehumanization is the fact that we all spend more and more and more time on devices um, dealing with representations of human beings and not with human beings. And if you grow up, if you, if you were born in this century, that's how your, your brain was shaped to do that. Uh, at least as much as it was shaped to deal with actual human beings. Um, and that of course is going to have a tremendously deleterious effect. Yeah, but we risk inviting a moral panic um, by externalizing, as we so often do, the conditions that led one individual to commit a discrete criminal act. Um, I'm willing to accept the idea that AR-15s have a lot to do with this because AR-15s are used in every single mass shooting in the last 20 years. There's something along those lines. It's 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 a, a, a contributing factor, no doubt. But we have determined as a society that we're going to allow everybody to buy AR-15s. The issue is settled. What are, maybe violent video games have an effect on somebody who is mentally disabled, mentally disturbed. Possibly. They don't have an effect on the other 100 million people who play these video games, but maybe one or two do. But we have determined as a society that we are going to live with that level of risk. But technology, I, I would argue, does have an effect on people who are not uh, emotionally on the margins. Everyone is much more awful to to one another now. I absolutely agree, which right. is why you as a responsible human being should not be on Facebook. I can't tell you enough. Get off Facebook. I am only on one social media network and it is professional entirely and it is an agonizing experience on a daily basis, but it is my professional duty to do this. Don't smoke cigarettes. Don't drink alcohol to excess. Don't go on social media. I, I think we cannot mandate these things. We have. Talk, I'm not talking about talked, mandating. I understand. Right. We have talked ourselves right. into this. Into well, we've had these debates. The debates are settled. Okay. Well, we need to. We need no debate is ever settled. To be fair, I mean, politically, a debate can be settled, but no debate, no debate is ever. Nor, nor should a debate ever be settled. I mean, there are certain things that should be settled, like you know, there shouldn't be child sacrifice and things like that, which is a horrible thing to say today. But of course, that's sort of the fundament of Western civilization is that the societies that stop practicing animal sacrifice survive, uh, human sacrifice survived, and the societies that didn't, didn't. That's just your Western cultural imperialist mindset. I know, we absolutely. Need <laughs> no, I mean, so there, that, you use the term moral panic. So that is a very interesting question that we face. I guess that's a better way to summarize it than I put it, which is Guy and Buffalo, I'm not using their names. I know their names. I'm not using their names. Uh, guy in Buffalo, guy in Texas, these massacres, that's two people using AR-15s. There are 20, according to ABC News, I just looked it up, there are more than 20 million legal AR-15s in circulation in the United States. Two people out of those 20 million, or maybe that's maybe 
individuals own multiple AR-15. So let's say 10 million, let's just, you know, make up a number and say 10 million people own AR-15s. Two of them committed these heinous acts. Are the acts sufficiently heinous for there, for us to say, it's not a moral panic to say we need to do something about these guns because their dis- their effect, not only on the victims, but on the society at large, the panic that it induces, the fear that it induces in children, the fear that it induces in people who work in schools or whatever is so large that um, it's not a moral panic to say that something extraordinary needs to be done about them because of the costs here. Or was what I just said wrong? And the thing to do is say, no matter how much publicity is given to these cases, and no matter how much we talk about them, out of uh, 150 million people who own guns and 20 million of them who own AR-15s, every year, 10 or 12 of them do something horrendous. And is that the number that we should be looking at? Or is that callous? Is that, I thought is you that think, dehumanizing? It's it's not dehumanizing or callous. It's it's, it's thoughtful. Uh, and it's a conversation that we should and have been having for a very long time. But you can, you can replace killing and AR-15s with rape and alcohol. Is alcohol responsible for rape or is the rapist responsible for rape? Should we deny the responsible access to this substance? because the irresponsible abuse it. Well, as I, you know, that's a, that's a, that's also a, a, all these questions. I think the whole point is that living in a free society is a trade-off. There is a trade-off to the kinds of freedoms that we have been granted. The trade-off was supposed to be resolved in the eyes of the founders and Tocqueville and others by the idea that uh, the self-governing aspect of American society would form a f- would would provide a form of social policing against uh, horrifying and immoral license, and it does. I mean, by virtue of the numbers you just you just said, twenty million people have AR-15s. We don't have twenty million murderers. Right. Nowhere uh, near it. It's a fr- right. it's an unmeasurable fraction. But I'm just saying, so the, so the general philosophical idea is we gather together, we have this free society, our society's primary laws, as laid out in the Constitution, are about guaranteeing the rights that the state cannot intrude upon, right? That is, that is the, one of the many, but if probably the most revolutionary aspect of our, of our system, is that we begin by saying, here are things that government is not allowed to encroach upon. Here are rights, here are liberties government can't encroach upon. But it's not like those rights can't be abused. And according to, you know, according to the founders, and as I say, Tocqueville, the idea was that those rights were to be policed by us outside of government, by us as citizens, by us as members of communities by us living in little platoons and that's where the internet is so destructive 
Well, and also because, where, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but just no, no, no. that's go. such an important point. Cause it's also why the, the, the messaging from the top, from, from whoever happens to be in charge of the government at the time is ringing hollow for people. Right. I mean, because everybody keeps appealing to, you know, federal, federal power in particular, we've got to pass a law. We got to do this. We got to do that. I mean, you can buy, I can walk out. I can, I can drive 20 minutes across town here in DC and buy an illegal gun easier than I can go find baby formula. That's just a fact. But in both cases, the average citizen is look, saying government's not fixing either of these problems for me. And I agree, John, a lot of it's because we've actually outsourced too much of our moral agency and moral responsibility to government. And that's where I sound like a raging libertarian. But in terms of civic health and civic responsibility, it's all about what are my rights? And we never want to talk about the responsibilities that for uh, several generations now, we've not been exercising. Also, these cases are individual, obviously, and we 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 are we are connecting them because of the time frame, Buffalo and Uvalde, uh, and presumably because one assumes that Uvalde was somehow triggered, or uh, you know, there, there's some involvement in his head with Buffalo. But Buffalo was an ideological act, right? Or it wasn't idiot, but I mean, it was obviously act of an evil person. Uh, you know, who had already apparently had some experience as a kid killing animals, which is the the number one sign that someone is going to be a, a violent schizophrenic. Um, and uh, but so he had this manifest. He was triggered by the Christchurch Killers Manifesto and data and found this place that had the highest per capita number of African Americans in the state and went there to shoot people in a supermarket. Valde kid shot and probably killed his own grandmother before now that that's where we got to we got to draw a line okay cuz the person who shoots and kills his own grandmother before he goes on to do what he did that person has slipped every bond every bound that person has violated we are then in a demonic circumstance right because what every connection that person has to any any thread of moral sense or whatever was severed not when he went into the school but when he shot his grandmother and i mean that that's where you can't liken these two things necessarily because there are two wildly different things going on right i mean that is a very serious I mean, am I, do you guys? Well, I think you can liken them in, in the sense that neither of them really used to happen. Uh, and, and so they're, the, the fact that both types do now arise. Um, I mean, we're comparing this to Sandy Hook. This is exactly what happened with right. Sandy Hook. Adam Lanza shot and killed his mother before he right. went and shot and killed the right. school. That is, no. I am no longer human. But I, I mean, decades yeah. ago, this 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 right. didn't uh, used yeah. to happen. So yeah. in that, and so you can liken them in the sense that they are they are they are both part of this national soul sickness. Right. Well, we used to talk about serial killers like this. You have epidemics of mass murderers, but discreet murderers. Right. But we still have them, but we have them much less. The person who kills his mother or his grandmother before he uh, before he before he goes out to perform his massacre is doing is breaking the most elemental law that could possibly exist 
And so under those circumstances, saying, well, you know, if only he hadn't had access to an AR-15. Yeah. Okay. Maybe he hadn't had access to an AR-15 and he could have, you know, stabbed people. And, could have sh- and so he would have had his, his, the death toll would have been less. But he would have stabbed his mother. He would have stabbed his grandmother yeah, and to you, death and, and then you don't, gone into it. And you don't wake up one morning and snap and do that. Like it takes a long, you, there are signs, many signs, probably that. Well, we'll, we'll know. We'll know later. I'm sure today. we'll know. But we'll we knew, we knew yeah. if, he, if he follows the Lanza's trajectory, they knew for a very long time and sought help, didn't seek help, wished it would go away. There's, you can't police that. No red flag law would intervene in that circumstance. That's true in Parkland also. That's the point about these cases is you are then obliging a parent or a grandparent to say, my child, my grandchild, whatever, is evil. There is evil in this child. What are they then to do? I mean, Adam Lanza's mother, you know, like his his father ran away. His mother coddled him, cajoled him, got him treatment, did this, did that, bought him five computers. All she wanted him to do was sit in his room on his computer and not do what he did. And finally he killed her and then went and killed. And she knew he had some date with horror. And is she to blame? I mean, she's not to blame either. They're not to blame. There's e- the world. There is evil in the world, and evil is a real thing. And we don't like to talk about evil. Or liberal, liberal, you know, sort of us uh, enlightened liberals don't like to talk about evil. I mean, we don't like it because it then starts implicating religion and the supernatural and whether there are actual there are actual demonic effects on people. Which the minute that I'm saying this, I know there are people listening to this who think I'm going crazy. I, I'm not crazy. I I think that evil is a real thing and that their evil is a real force. What it is, how it functions, whether it is, you know, personifiable or whatever, that's beyond my writ. But you look at this, you look at these key people and you say that this is something that does not, what they become, it's not there, but the, for the grace of God go I. I think we know that about going crazy. I think we know that about starving. We know that about poverty. We know that about even, you know, abuse and things like that, that we could all snap and do terrible things, but not these things. I mean, that's, that crosses into a category of, as I say, sort of nihilism that almost has a supernatural element to it. And I don't, you know, obviously that's not solvable except (laughs) in a world that accepts that there are such things as demonic evil and therefore has some idea that that needs to be monitored and corrected. Don't, don't ask me how, I don't know. What a fun conversation we're having here. And I hope that our first advertiser fast growing trees isn't offended by the fact that I'm now going to talk to you about fast growing trees, uh, obviously in a horrible time, you know, when we have horrible conversations, one of the few consolations we have, the beauties of nature reminding us of, you know, God's earthly experiment, let's say, 
And fastgrowingtrees.com is a very good example of a service that is there to help us enjoy nature in our own, literally in our own backyards. Uh, spring and summer, this is time to get outdoors with friends, entertaining pool parties. But if your yard looks like a plant cemetery, you're not going to enjoy it as much. So you got to get your place looking like a resort easy with fastgrowingtrees.com. When it comes to caring for your plants, know-how matters. That's why FastGrowingTrees.com's experts curate thousands of plant varieties that will thrive in your specific climate, location, and needs. There's no waiting in lines, no messy cars from hauling plants all over town because you order online or over the phone and your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days. Plus, their growing and care advice is available 24-7, whether you're looking for increased privacy shade or adding some natural beauty to your yard. FastGrowingTrees.com have the perfect plants and the expertise to help you find them. Noah, you got them in your yard. They're thriving, so you don't have to activate that 30-day alive and thrive guarantee because they are alive and thriving. And But if you were having any trouble, you could activate it, and you can trust everything will be healthy for years to come. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary right now, and you'll get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary, fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. And though my friend David Bonson's um, book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, is about economic ideas and human flourishing and all of that. David, who is himself the son of a, of a uh, distinguished minister, uh, uh, pastor, and uh, somebody who is uniquely uh, able to bring ideas about good and evil theological notions to bear, uh, even as he relays the history of uh, economic ideas and how uh, human liberty leads to human flourishing. Um, you can you can see through negative examples uh, a kind of unfreedom and a kind of uh, nightmarish world that we are we do not live in and will not be living in because of ideas that preserve us from them. You can get those ideas in his book, his wonderful book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Uh, you can get it at Amazon, get it at Barnes & Noble. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Get it today. So shall we discuss what happened last night in the elections in Georgia? Noah, shall we? I think we shall. Georgia and Alabama, because they both had primaries. Um <clears throat> So, I mean, obviously, the national news cycle is that Donald Trump took it on the chin last night. Uh, that sort of flattens elections, especially primary elections, which hinge on a much more local issues and personalities and what have you. But Donald Trump did take it on the chin last night. Um, Governor Brian Kemp won walking away. I think he had like a 50 percent margin. Um, he obviously feuded with the president, former president, over the 2020 election. Brad Rapsenberger, who's the Secretary of State, won walking away. Um, he actually avoided a primary runoff. He had 20% margin over a much more insurrectionary figure who was seeking to oust him and whose entire campaign rested on revanchism over the 2020 election. Um, as we previewed yesterday, Marjorie Taylor Greene won. Um, she won handily and uh, she avoided a runoff. So she didn't have any, any sort of trouble there. And yet Raf Raffsenberger won her district by 20 points. 
So these same voters who were voting for this figure who cannot be accurately described as a member of Congress because she has no committee assignments, does no legislative work, spends more time on TV than doing any legislating and doesn't really spend any time in her district, which was recently was uh, redrawn. Um, but those same voters returned Rafsenberger too. So we can't really talk about 2020 as being the decisive figure, uh, decisive uh, element here. And you know, briefly in Alabama, which also had primaries, Kay Ivey, who's the incumbent governor, also won re-election. Um, and she had been targeted by Donald Trump for the most bizarre reason. In 2021, he wanted to hold a rally at a battleship in Alabama and Alabama denied him the privilege. He still had a rally in Alabama, but not on a battleship. So he was maneuvering behind the scenes to get her uh, out. There will likely be, I think there's a runoff in the, in the Senate primary that had a very establishmentarian effort to back um, this uh, candidate Brit. Uh, I forget her first name, but she leads in a runoff uh, race against now who's likely to be uh, the, you know, this uh, fight between him and her rather and uh, Mo Brooks, who's a very conservative figure and has tried to align himself with Donald Trump, although Donald Trump turned on him in favor of another candidate. Who well, Trump endorsed him. Mo Brooks was doing badly in the polls. Trump withdrew his endorsement jury, in favor right. of somebody else who now is then crater. third. Yeah, right. So, I mean, if your only way to look at these races is pro-Trump, anti-Trump, it's a very decisive defeat for Donald Trump. I think that's a flawed way to look at these primaries. Um, there's many more factors going on, obviously, as uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district demonstrates. Um, but if that's the if that's your framing, and it's both national media's framing and the MAGA wings framing, they're they're both in the same camp here, trying to make this a referendum, up and down referendum, on the Trump legacy. Then it's a very clear signal. I don't think it's a signal of anything. I mean, I think it's a, a signal of sanity and good reason that the voters of Georgia uh, did not allow themselves to be gulled by Trump's games. They like Kemp. Kemp has done a good job as governor. They clearly, enough of them, particularly Raffsenberger is an important example here, believed that he did not, nothing wrong in certifying the election, that more than half of them voted for him, uh, and only 32% or something voted for his rival, uh, or his, his chief rival. Um, and so it's like, now we're not going to, we're not buying into that. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not going to be sacrificial lambs. And then maybe these primary voters are the sort of people who said, you blew it for us in the, in the runoff uh, in, in, in December of, uh, or January of 2021. Like you, you ruined this for us, Donald Trump, you talk low information Republican voters into staying home. And now we have Warnock and Ossoff as our, as our senators, and uh, you know we're active Republicans who vote in primaries. Uh, sorry, like we voted Republican in, we were there for the runoff, and you blew it for us. We're voting for Kemp and, and Raffsenberger. That said, I see absolutely no indication that we should look at anything that's been going on in the Republican Party in this cycle and say that the nomination for president in 2024 is not Donald Trump's if he wants it. None of this has to do with voting for Trump personally, right? I mean, 
that's Trump's problem is, or, you know, yes, if Trump were so uniquely powerful that simply every, anybody who, you know, he, he, he sort of like um, sprinkled fairy dust over then won or got 30 or, you know, prevailed by 30 points. If David Perdue, who of course had won statewide as, as a, as a center and would have won statewide as a center in 20 in the runoff, had Trump not done what he had done, got, what did he get? 25% of the vote? Um, So, you know, so Trump doesn't have the ability to get people elected per se, you know, just by willing it. Didn't happen with Mo Brooks, didn't happen with Purdue, didn't happen with whoever he wanted uh, to oust the Secretary of State of uh, and isn't, you know, and basically if Dr. Oz wins in Pennsylvania, he will win by a couple hundred votes. So it's not like Trump, you know, just pushed him over the top, you know, it, it, amazingly with great power and authority. It has a weird parallel with Barack Obama. Both of them, both Donald Trump and Barack Obama presided over the decimation of their respective parties. Neither of them had any kind of special fairy dust that got, you know, they're, they're people who mimicked their style and affect elected right the cult of personality around them was unique to them and them alone right but i think we got to go back to the point that i'm making here which is that if you're one of these people who's going to run in 2024 i mean unless you have a very specific very cleverly wrought case if you are ron DeSantis and you come up with a case that not only should i be elected president because x or you know be your nominee for president of the republican party because of my record we can't let him be nominated that argument has to be sufficiently powerful to overcome trump's obvious natural advantages here and i see absolutely no evidence uh, over the last you know six weeks or something to suggest that trump it, it, doesn't have a stranglehold on the party if he chooses to run. He may not. That's the whole point. Um, he looks I'm like sure he's lost right. some steps. His energy level is not what it was. And he is consumed with the past, which is not a really great way to move forward in the future, even if it's all you know negative and about revenge. Abe, I'm sorry, you were saying. No, I'm just going to say, I'm sure, I'm sure you're right, because there are millions of Republican voters who don't want to relitigate 2020, who aren't on board with Trump's personal feuds, but who would absolutely pull the lever for him nonetheless. So so it's it's one thing. They're very comfortable not endorsing his antics across the board, which doesn't mean they wouldn't take him in a heartbeat over over someone else that they that they didn't think was going to be tough on this or that issue. Well, and particularly since there have been a couple stories in the last few weeks about how behind the scenes Democrats are trying to figure out who should run in 2024, because nobody really thinks Joe Biden has what it takes. If it's Kamala, yeah, that's absolutely right, Dave. I think there are plenty of people who say, not her. So we just have to vote for whoever is not her in a kind of Hillary-esque way for different reasons with Kamala. But I think that that, that the turmoil on the other side is also making it more of a question in people's minds. But remember, you, 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 it's one or the other. You don't, we have two choices. And, and I think Abe's right that if he, it's actually incumbent upon Republicans now, if they do not want Trump to make sure that there's a viable alternative to him in the primaries. I mean, if there can be, I'm just saying that, you know, we could be getting to the point where it's sort of like, yeah, that rascal. You know, 
Look, he tried to get camp. He tried to, de- you know, he tried no, to I don't get- think he so. He, he, no, he but talks what a, too he's much. He's a delightful rascal. No, well, they don't. No, no. They don't hear him as much because of the social media. Ban. But they'll have to if he's going to run. And then I think he's, yeah. he, he, he is so aggrieved and he cannot go 10 minutes in any public setting without starting to talk about the election was stolen. So I think his weird obsessiveness will start to come through and people go, wait a minute. <laughs> But that's why if someone is going to run against him who is a credible opponent, that person is going to have to bite the bullet and say, not only elect me, but you cannot elect him. And that's a very, very, very touchy matter because Republicans are increasingly inclined to think that we never had it so good as when Trump was president. And look at Biden and look at, uh, you know, it's so terrible and all that. And so I don't know. It's an interesting. I just don't I don't think you can look at these results over the last two or three weeks now. We've had several weeks of primaries and claim that the, the Trump affect, not Trump's policies, not protectionism, not owning the libs, whatever. But the Trumpian affect, this combativeness that so enlivens the commentary class on the right has the support of roughly 30% of the primary electorate, which is approximately what it had in 2016. Well, it had until, yeah, until people started falling out. And then, of course, what Trump got in 2016 was 45% of the primary electorate, but owing to the structure of the Republican winner-takes-all system, you know, he won pretty easily on the, you know, I mean, he, he, you know, he, he didn't quite get to the majority you know, walking into the convention, but then he did. Anyway, he, wh- who's gonna, how's that gonna play out differently? You think that Ron DeSantis is gonna get 70% over him? No, the but real I think question you have to ask to is how, how much of the Republican electorate in the primary are the same people who gave Marjorie Taylor Greene 70% of the primary vote in her district also roughly 50 percent of that electorate voted for raffsenberger i know on the same but ticket in this case but if raffsenberger was running against marjorie taylor green would they have voted for raffsenberger not in that district okay that's what i'm saying is that district more reflective of the republican norm or i would say is... absolutely not it's an r45 not. district it is by definition not reflective of the, the majority of voters in the country. I'm not saying the majority of voters in the country. I'm saying the majority Republican of primary Republican voters. primary voters. Yeah. Do we know that? Mm, I, would, I would venture a guess <laughs> that, yes, the, the voters of a rural Georgia district are not the same voters as Pennsylvania, of Ohio, of Arizona, of Nevada. Like the soup, yeah, the super safe, the, the plus 10 D plus 10 R seats, super safe districts breed weirdos. Incubate, they can, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I <laughs> grant you. I grant you. Anyway, it's it, we're, this is obviously unresolvable and what will happen will happen and then we'll watch. <laughs> but um, but I, I speaking, we were also speaking briefly. Um, we didn't mention Texas, um, which is obviously marred by a horrific tragedy today. But there was a, a closely watched Democratic primary on the border uh, in Texas between Representative Henry Cuellar and Justin Cisneros, who is a very progressive perennial candidate of the Bernie Sanders wing. Um, and it's heading for a, likely a recount because it's very close. 
but it's still 5148 Quailar. Right. That's an establishment. Terry, I believe the is only, the only pro-life Democrat left in the house. Correct. Democratic and the, her entire closing argument was about Roe. This Cisneros. is Cisneros. This is the this is the rival to Quayer, who is the incumbent congressman who was the pro-lifer in the and she ran as an abortion rights advocate. Maximalist. And by against, the way, against it's her not party. just that she didn't have a case against him. He his office was raided. There's corruption stuff. Uh, he's been told he's not a target of that. And we don't have any okay. idea what happened with that. But we know he was not a target of that raid. It's very strange circumstance, but we have no reason okay. to believe that he's right under investigation. Anyway, yeah. So, so the so the record of the effort to, uh, you know, rid to sort of Tea Party out moderate to conservative Democrats in this cycle in primaries is again also showing very mixed results. In the on the Democratic side, is what you're is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. We were going to talk about long COVID. We, we re- we've run out of time, so we'll talk about long COVID tomorrow. This could be one of these things where uh, I'll tell you a, a, a quick story, and then we'll go. Uh, I was a researcher at Time Magazine in 1982, and every week the Time Magazine World section where I was a researcher would have a story list of the 12 stories that they were working on. Second week I was there, I worked on a story, a picture story from Time International, which was the edition abroad that we sometimes adapted articles from to the magazine on the beauty of Indian railroads, picture feature, like four pictures of amazing railroads in India, rail cars and stuff like that, sort of like in the Wes Anderson movie, The Darjeeling Railroad. Um, so the story, I, I, I researched it, we've closed it, and then one week it never ran. And then the next, it didn't run, it was postponed for the next week. And then it was supposed, because it had no news hook, postponed the next week, postponed the next week. Uh, I left time in February of, or March of 1984, having started there in September of 1982. And on the world section story list at the bottom, it said Indian Railways, and the, the writer was Johnson, the researcher was Podhoritz. And the story never ran, but it was on it was on the list for 18 months. So that could be our long COVID discussion is all I'm saying. The Honestly, way it's, it's a great right metaphor now. for right. long COVID. Right. Yes. It always <laughs> lingers. It's always there. And yet. <laughs> there we have it. Okay. Uh, Christine will not be with us tomorrow, uh, but we will have her back on Friday. So for her, for Abe, for Noah, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.